Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me out there on the other coast. How you doing, Darcy? Oh, I'm on the lower coast. I'm doing all right. Trying not to, trying to stay cool. Trying to try to stay hydrated. It's like 80 degrees in my house right now because my AC can't keep up with the outside heat. It's great. It is 90 degrees where I am right now and probably 95 mm. <laughs> in the room I'm in. Mm-mm. So I am dripping sweat, and yeah. it is incredibly hot. Um, and speaking of it being incredibly hot, um, kind of turning to a more serious note, this overturning of the Justin Ross Harris case. Yeah, dude. This Wanna is talk about that? So this just happened, let's see, this is Wednesday, June 22nd. So Georgia Supreme Court overturns the Justin Ross Harris murder conviction. And if you're not familiar with this case, he is the, I believe we talked about it, maybe just at the beginning of an episode. I'm not sure we, we did. did a whole episode on it. Yeah. But he is the man, the father, husband, who ran his morning errands, took his son to Chick-fil-A, then just went to work and left his car left his son in the car for seven hours while he carried on digital affairs on different dating apps and texting women and things like that um this was in 2014 and his son was 22 months old son cooper so So, um the opinion issued by issue wednesday the georgia supreme court ruled six to three that evidence submitted by prosecutors of harris's extramarital sexual relationships which the state portrayed as the motivation behind his decision to kill his son had unfair prejudicial impact on the jury. And that's interesting because I think that we talked, we discussed when we originally discussed this case that there were messages that he was sending other women about how he either didn't have kids or didn't want to have kids or. Yeah. And I think that was part of that evidence. And so that's interesting that, it's interesting that, that they overturned it because it really speaks to his state of his state of mind. Right. So they say because the properly admitted evidence that appellant maliciously and intentionally left Cooper to die was far from overwhelming. So they're saying basically it was they didn't prove without a reasonable doubt that it was intentional. Right. The court said we cannot say that this is that it is highly probable that the erroneously admitted sexual evidence did not contribute to the jury's guilty verdicts. But this doesn't mean that he is free and clear because in addition to the three counts of murder, he was also found guilty of two counts of cruelty to children and guilty of three counts related to his electronic exchanges of lube material with the minors and those charges remain in place those convictions remain in place interesting so he was sentenced to 12 years for the three charges the 10 years for one count of attempt to commit sexual exploitation of a child and one year each for two counts of dissemination of harmful material to a minor and this was all part of his affair one of his affairs that he was having with multiple women oh my goodness the Cobb county district attorney's office plans to file a motion for the court to reconsider this ruling evidently they're already on it good um yeah that's just sad it's, he it's, died after seven hours in a hot car on a hot yeah. summer day june 2014 it's very sad and at one point harris returned to his car to put something in his car while cooper was in the car and did not notice him that's just incredible is what he me. says 
So I don't, I don't believe it. I don't know how you could not notice, but yeah. So the the Georgia Supreme court basically overturned that because they said that the jury was uh, uh, influenced inappropriately by the information about the affair um, his wife, I read an article that says his wife still supports him, said that oh he was... Oh, my God. Even though he was sexing with six women? Even though he was a terrible husband. Puke. So, yeah. six women he's talking to, including one minor, according yeah. to his phone records. And who knows how many other women he talked to or was in the process of trying to talk to. Exactly. But they're saying that that sexual behavior is not related to the death. Yeah. So... We'll keep following that and um, have updates for you as that continues to play out, but very interesting. To prove the theory, they presented to the jury that he needed to prove the defendant's sexual appetites were so strong and uncontrolled that he would take the seemingly unfathomable step of leaving his son in the car on purpose. Given the state had to prove the allegedly limitless extent of those desires and the level of depravity, prosecutors allege the trial court had the discretion to admit a detailed and wide-ranging body of evidence concerning those issues, the, opi- the opinion said. Uh, I mean, That's do you weird. think that they should be allowed to enter stuff like that, evidence like that, in a, tri- in a murder trial or a manslaughter um, trial? I, I don't disagree with the admission of the evidence. I kind of disagree with the notion that they had to prove his sexual intent was so strong that that's why he killed his son. Like, I think yeah. that they just need to, need, I, like, to me, it seems like they would just need to provide, like, he had motive to, for wanting to not be in a marriage and not be in a family anymore, and right. therefore this was the action he took. I don't think that, like, saying his sexual desire was so high that he killed his son, like, that seems unnecessary, but I don't right. know. You don't think there's any chance that he accidentally left this little boy in the car and it resulted in his death? Like a manslaughter type of a thing. I, in this particular case, I lean toward intentional, but it it can, I mean, it can always be an accident. You know what I mean? Like, um, but in this particular case with these circumstances, with this information, I do kind of lean toward intentional. I'm really kind of disturbed by the fact that he returned to the car and did not notice yeah. That his son was still in there. I, I'm not a parent, so I don't, I don't know. You know, like, yeah. that's, I, I don't know. I, it just I can't seems say impossible. For sure. I, it's, it, it, it bothers me that, that, that he returned to the car yeah. and supposedly didn't notice. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. Okay. Um, so we recorded this episode a while back. Um, but we do have a couple of important updates that we wanted to add. So we're putting a little splice into this episode, but first is an update on the Emmett Till case. Darcy, did you see this? I did see this. This Um, and the team here seems to have been hoping for some kind of an update to come in soon on this one. And we spoke about an update a while back, but I guess a team searching a Mississippi courthouse basement for evidence about the lynching of Emmett Till found an unserved warrant. And this Mm -hmm. was charging a white woman in his 1955 kidnapping and the relative of the victims want authorities to arrest this person. It's been 70 years since this crime happened. But I guess they found a warrant for the arrest of Carolyn Bryant Donham. She was identified as Mrs. Roy Bryant via the document, and it was discovered last week by searchers inside a file folder that had been placed in a box. 
and evidently the documents were kept inside boxes for decades, but there was nothing else to indicate where the warrant dated August 29th, 1955 might have been. They narrowed it down between the 50s and 60s and got lucky. And a certain person certified that the warrant was genuine just to make sure it wasn't, you know, something that somebody had inadvertently slipped in there or a mock or something of that nature or something that wasn't real. Mm -hmm. Um, The search group included members of the Emmett Till Legacy Foundation and two relatives of Till, one of his cousins, Deborah Watts, the head of the foundation and her daughter, Terry Watts. Relatives want authorities to use the warrant to arrest Donham, who at the time of the slaying was married to one of the two white men who was tried and acquitted just after Till was abducted from a relative's home, killed and dumped into a river. Serve it and charge it, they are telling the Associated Press. Keith Beauchamp, whose documentary film The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till preceded a renewed Justice Department probe that ended without charges in 2007, was also part of the search. He said there there's enough new evidence to prosecute this woman. Donham set off the case in August 1955 by accusing the 14-year-old Till of making improper advances at a family store in Money, Mississippi. A cousin of Till who was there has said that Till whistled at the woman and me an act that flew in the face of Mississippi racist social codes of the era. Evidence indicates a woman, possibly Donham, identified Till to the men who later killed him. The arrest warrant against Donham was publicized at the time, but the sheriff's office told reporters they did not want to bother the woman since she had two young children to care for. Now in her 80s and most recently living in North Carolina, Donham has not commented on this case. Of course she's not going to comment on the case. Yeah. Um, But Terry Watts and the Till family believe the warrant accuses Donham of kidnapping and accounts uh, and amounts to new evidence. This is what the state of Mississippi needs to go ahead. District Attorney uh, Dwayne Richardson, whose office would prosecute a case, declined comment on the warrant and cited a December report about the Till case from the Justice Department, which said no prosecution was possible. Contacted by the Associated Press last week, the Sheriff's Office said this is the first time I've heard about a warrant. Or excuse me, this is the first time I've known about a warrant. Banks, who was seven years old when Till was killed, said nothing was said about a warrant. When a former district attorney investigated the case five or six years ago, I will see if we can get a copy of the warrant and get with the DA to get their opinion on it. However, experts say that arrest warrants can, quote, go stale due to the passage of time and changing circumstances. And one from 1955 almost certainly wouldn't pass muster before a court, even if the sheriff agreed to serve it. Um says a law professor, but combined with new evidence, the original arrest warrant absolutely could be an important stepping stone toward establishing a probable cause for a new prosecution. Hmm. If you went in front of a judge, you could say that once upon a time, a judge determined there was probable cause and much more information is available today, which would be good. Till, who was from Chicago, was visiting relatives in Mississippi when he entered into the store where Dunham 21 was working August 24th, 1955. A Till relative who was there told the Associated Press that Till whistled at the woman. Donham testified in court that Till also grabbed her and made a lewd comment. Two nights later, Donham's then-husband, Roy Bryant, and his half-brother, J.W. Malam, showed up armed in this home and took Till. Till's brutalized body, weighed down by a fan, was pulled from the river from the river Five days later, in another county, his mother's decision to open the casket so mourners in Chicago could see what had happened helped galvanize the, the civil rights movement at the time. Mm-hmm. 
Bryant and Milan were acquitted of murder, but later admitted the killing in a magazine interview while both were named at the same warrant that accused Donham of kidnapping. Authorities did not pursue the case following the acquittal. Wright testified during the murder trial that a person with a voice lighter than a man's identified Till from the inside of a pickup truck and the abductors took him away. Other evidence in FBI files indicates that earlier that the same night indicates that earlier that same night Donham told her husband at least two other black men were were not the right person. I don't know. Um, there is no statute of limitations on kidnapping, is my understanding in Mississippi. So I think there is grounds okay. to potentially um, file charges. Right. So they would have to file charges for a new arrest warrant if that were the case. Right. They couldn't use this one. They could just use this one as sort of evidence in order to issue a new one. But yeah. is this really enough to get this woman? I mean, I understand to punish somebody rather than nobody is better than nothing. But is, I mean, how is that going to fix it if the people who actually murdered him are not being prosecuted? Or do you think that there's hopes that the people that actually murdered could potentially face prosecution with this as a stepping stone? I think those, those people are dead. Those men are dead. Yeah, but wasn't there a whole group of men that were involved with um, this? I mean, the, the two that kidnapped him are dead. But I think because what's, what they're saying in there is the arrest warrant plus new evidence. So it depends on what that new evidence is. And if it is the evidence that came from that book that came out a few years ago, that when we discussed this, when we talked. I thought that was suspect, the evidence in the book. That's what I was about to say. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, so when we talked about this episode, oh, so when we talked about this case, a while back when this book was published, there was this evidence that the author was claiming that, um, is it Carolyn? Is that her name? Carolyn Bryant? Yeah. That Carolyn Bryant had admitted to lying and that she said that she made it up and that he did not actually grab her and say lewd, and lewd comment or anything like that. Um, and then when, and that's when the Justice Department, I believe, reopened the investigation and they found that there were no civil rights charges that could be brought because that author did not actually have any recordings of her admitting to this. Right. So there's no actual record of her admitting to lying. And that's a very big problem as far as that book is concerned. Yeah. So I think that them, fi I mean, finding the, the arrest warrant is, is, is big and it's not... It all surprising to me that it wasn't served and I wouldn't be surprised if nothing came of this, mm -hmm. but it depends on what this new evidence that they're, you know, referring to what this, that, what that new evidence is. Yeah. If they actually have new evidence, um, then, you know, certainly I think that would be something they should look into, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if nothing came of this. This is, yeah. I, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think that she is going to get away with being responsible for his murder. Yeah. And I think the fact that the Justice Department already made that ruling on it is, doesn't bode well for this. Um, well, and the Justice Department, if I'm not mistaken, the Justice Department ruling was that, this hurt, that there was a civil rights violation that they could charge her on in terms of federal yeah um charges but i think that what this would indicate is there may be some state charges but i i wouldn't at all be i i wouldn't hold my breath on on waiting for state charges mississippi for state charges 
Yeah. 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 Um, if you want to hear more about the Emmett Till case, um, we recorded that one back in February 2021. It's episode 119. So go back and hear our analysis on that one if you would like to hear more details. Um, the second big update um, that we discovered this week is the capture of Caitlin Armstrong. And yeah. that episode was episode 179, which we released, I think, the week before last. And that one, the Texas woman suspected in the fatal shooting of professional cyclist Anna Mariah Wilson um, at an Austin home has been arrested in Costa Rica by the U.S. Marshals. Caitlin Marie Armstrong, 34, was arrested this last week at a hostel on Santa Teresa Beach in Provincia de Punta Arenas. The marshal service said in a statement, Armstrong was expected to be returned to the United States where she faces a murder charge. The marshal service elevated the Caitlin Armstrong investigation to a major case status early in the investigation, which likely played a key role in her capture after the 43-day run. Interesting. Wilson, 25, was found dead May 11th, and Austin police um, issued a murder warrant for Armstrong on May 19th. Authorities said Armstrong sold her vehicle May 13th, then flew from Austin to Houston shortly after being questioned that day by authorities about Wilson's death. She then flew to New York before using a fraudulent passport to fly from Newark, New Jersey, to San Jose, Costa Rica on May 18th. Wow, so that's how she got out. Right? Yeah. Isn't that bonkers? Wilson, a competitive gravel and mountain bike racer and a Vermont native known as Mo, had been in Austin for a cycling event. And according to an affidavit, Wilson had previously dated Armstrong's boyfriend, Colin Strickland, who was who has cooperated with investigators and is not a suspect. They want to make it clear. Armstrong's SUV was seen on surveillance video outside the home where Wilson was found shot to death. And this is big news. Yeah. They finally got this one. 43 days. I cannot believe she was on the run for 43 days. I know. Days. And I think it's the big thing, I think, with this is once they finally put her on the major crime status, like, they mm -hmm. have the FBI and the Marshal Service, once they put you on their most wanted list, they usually get the fugitive or whomever they're looking for within, I believe, like, 48 hours or something crazy like that. Like, the stats, oh, wow. the stats on when they on I, how quickly they arrest people once they put them on the, the federal most wanted list is is very fast. Um, so I think that's probably a result of that. I, I guess it triggers a lot more resources. I'm not sure exactly. I don't know how it works. If you do know, let us know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's fascinating. I wonder how much she changed her appearance. Yeah, and there's going to be another charge for the false passport too. You know, so... Oh, yeah. They'll tack that on there, too. I mean, it's not like right. she's not going to get life in prison. But she may try to plea bargain her way out of this one. Entirely possible. It's possible. Um, and they may argue that it down to second degree murder that it you know wasn't necessarily premeditated heat of the moment i don't know but like she may say that she went to the house to talk to her and right murdered her in self-defense is what i'm thinking right. she's most likely right. to do so but that is interesting or she'll plead temporary insanity which is like you know you are in the passion mm -hmm. of the moment and texas is big on that at particular charge yeah you lost your ish in the heat of the moment with a, in a, during a lover's quarrel or something of right. that nature that you were so impassioned in the moment that you lost your sense of, it's kind of like an insanity right. plea. So um, she's either going to do that one or she's going to say that it was self-defense that she went there to talk to her and 
And then, yeah, and then panicked. Lost and, it. But then she's going to have to explain how she was able to get her hands on a false passport in such a short period of time because yeah, the idea of having a false passport kind of indicates to me that you're planning on some doing something. So they're going to have to come up with a way to explain yeah. that. But that is fascinating. Because you don't just walk down to the corner store and grab a passport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't even know how you get a false passport. But that is, I, like, that's fascinating because that was, like, the one thing that we were both kind of couldn't be puzzled about when we did this case was because we could not figure out how in the world she could have left the country. And it didn't occur to either of us that there would have been a false passport involved. Like, didn't know you could still um, do that. I wouldn't think that it would be impossible. I think that it would be something that, you know, would likely or have a good possibility of being caught, but she got away. So it's interesting though, but I knew they would get her eventually. She can't in today's world. You can't really hide forever. And she's pretty distinctive looking. Right. I, I guess I'm just like, every time... She is. And and I guess every time like I've traveled out of the country, they always have scanned my passport. So you would think, like, unless she just ha- straight up had a legal passport with somebody else's identity, you know, like, a fake passport seems like it would get caught pretty easily. But I don't know. I mean... I guess we'll see, right? I don't know. Yeah, we'll find out. Interesting. All right. So that's our little additional portion to the episode and now back to our usually scheduled program let's switch gears again um i want to talk about a subject that is near and dear to me and that is caffeine (laughs) (laughs) i am tired all the time i really have suffered tremendously in the last year or two with fatigue and with mental clarity and being able to kind of keep energy throughout the day i'm working a ton I've got a lot of house projects, I'm writing, I'm podcasting, I'm doing a million different things, and it's hard to maintain energy and still not need three naps during the day. Right. So the solution that I found for this is from our friends at Magic Mind, and there is a two-ounce shot of a matcha kind of flavored drink that I've come up with as an alternative to this. And previously, I would drink chai tea and a number of other caffeinated beverages throughout the day. There's a lot of sugar, there's a lot of calories, I get jittery. The, the energy levels are uneven, and this matcha-flavored drink from Magic Mind substitutes for me. Like, mm-hmm. I just, I don't even chill it. You can chill it. You can serve it with smoothies. You can have it on the rocks or whatever. Or you can have it at room temp. I have it at room temp, and it has basically substituted for my coffee or chai tea. What about you, Dars? Yeah, so I have talked about this a bunch, but, like, I already have insomnia. It's really bad. I'm trying to get a PhD. I'm working full-time. Like, so I am always in a cycle of drinking coffee throughout the day and then not being able to sleep and then not feeling rested and then drinking more coffee throughout the day. It's a continuous cycle and it never goes away. So I have been looking for something to kind of help replace so much coffee. I still do drink coffee. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I still do drink coffee, but I do drink it with this little two ounce shot of magic mind. And it has really helped me maintain my focus and energy throughout the day. I've not noticed like a dip in the afternoon, like that post-lunch kind of, you know, whenever, when you're just like, oh, my stomach is full, I'm exhausted. I haven't noticed that. I've been able to yeah. focus on my work and like knock things out. And I mean, it's, it's definitely helped me for sure. And I like right. that it's natural ingredients and it tastes what really good. What else is in it though? 
So there's L-theanine, and this works with the caffeine that you consume. So, like, you don't need to consume a whole lot, but if you do consume caffeine, this kind of works pairs with that to help focus your attention. Um, it's got Bacopa monieri, which is, like, um, a natural Adderall. So they show that the procrastination is more based on stress and cortisol levels, and we all know about cortisol. If you have high cortisol levels in your system, you retain... Um, your, it slows down your metabolism, you retain stress, you get more stress more easily, you have anxiety. It's, there's a lot of subsequent um, consequences to cortisol levels. So the Bacopa monieri helps with that. There's ashwagandha and rhodiola rosea, and these work on stress and anxiety. And there's also lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms that help boost clarity and focus so that you can finish your list. And have the rest of the day to get everything else on your list done if you're Sarah and I. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I've taken both the ashwagandha, rhodiola, and the cordyceps and lion's mane all separately as part of like this um, adrenals yeah. regimen to help with that because it's just like, ugh. Can't get that clarity, but I totally stand behind this product. It works. It does, and, and it tastes very good. Yeah, so the website, you can go to magicmind.co backslash bizarre, B-I-Z-A-R-R-E, and you can use our discount code bizarre20, so it's B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-2-0, and that'll give you 20% off the subscription of this delicious little natural two-shot supplement that tastes really good. It makes me feel like I'm putting something good on my body as opposed to a bunch of caffeine, a bunch of sugar, a bunch of energy drinks, Absolutely. anything like that, too. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. Um, main case for the day. We're going to talk about Lorenz and Wright. Oh. Yeah, you know about this case, right? I do know about this case. Yeah, it's very, very sad. But um, Lorenz and Vern Gain Wright was born November 4th, 1975. He was raised in Oxford, Mississippi. He started his prestigious basketball career playing at Lafayette High School uh, before transferring to Memphis, Tennessee to play at Booker T. Washington High School. Uh, and as it happens, Lorenzo's father, Herb, was actually a professional basketball player as well. Mm -hmm. He wasn't quite as prolific and prestigious as his son, but he did play in Finland and tried out for the Utah Jazz at one point. Oh, nice. So basketball was in this guy's blood, yeah. clearly. Right. Um, Wright chose to attend college at his hometown at the University of Memphis. The Tigers. Remember, he was part of the Kappa Alpha Psi fraternity. Oh. Memphis was part of Lorenzen's blood, and he loved his hometown. Yeah. I know a lot of people from Memphis, and they love Memphis. I haven't spent a whole lot of time there. I mean, I've been there a couple times, driven through it, and everything. But, yeah, it's apparently, it's apparently an awesome town. Yeah, and Memphis, um, like I said, is part of his blood. Unfortunately, though, there's about 30 to 40% of the population is below the poverty line. Yeah. And violent crime has been a big problem in the last couple of decades in this area. Specifically after Hurricane Katrina, a yeah. lot of people that relocated from New Orleans went to Memphis, went to Houston, and there was an increase in property crimes yes. as a result. But the city of Memphis itself is situated along the Mississippi River, and it's the second most populated city in Tennessee after Nashville. Yeah, it's right on the border between um, um, Tennessee and Arkansas. 
It is culturally and historically significant um, with mild temperatures and lots to do. European conquistadors visited the area by the, for the first time in the 1500s, and soon after, a blend of Spanish, French, and English took shape. So by the Civil War, though, Memphis was one of the largest cities in the South and kept growing as one of the world's largest markets for cotton and lumber. Right, and being on the Mississippi River definitely was part huge, of that. Huge, huge, yeah, because you have the ability to transport that stuff across the world, or uh, all across the country, sorry. Yep. Um, and it was considered to be the world's largest black population around that time as well, and was the site of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination mm -hmm. in the midst of the civil rights movement. So it's been a very, very, um, it's a historic touchstone of an area. Yes. Um, it now hosts the National Civil Rights Museum and the largest FedEx hub. It is also the busiest cargo transport area in the world. Oh, that's interesting. Because of that. Yeah, the, the National Civil Rights Museum actually is part of the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was assassinated. So, like, it's, there's a building. So, you said you haven't been there before? I haven't been to the museum, but I have a, a very good friend that has told us about the museum, and we're going to take a trip and go. But it, yeah. you walk through a traditional museum, and you kind of, as you're going through, you, you end on the the actual balcony of the Lorraine Motel. Wow. Yeah, it's supposed to be incredible. That's, that's pretty, probably pretty emotional. Yeah. Um, this is an extremely busy port as well, and it's the fifth busiest one in the US. Interesting. Out of Memphis. And like you said earlier, music is huge here. Huge. Um, and this is, there's a very unique, they call it the unique Memphis sound. Yeah which catapulted Memphis into the international into an international destination for the blues. Yes. Uh, basketball is also huge in Memphis, mm -hmm. hosting the Grizzlies, right? Yep, the Memphis Grizzlies. So Lorenzen stood out as a hometown hero and was a major player in that environment. Oh, I also want to say barbecue is amazing in Memphis. There's there are barbecue wars that go on in the country. I don't know if you guys know this. There's different kinds yeah. of barbecue. There's Kansas City barbecue. There's Texas barbecue. There's Carolina barbecue. My opinion, the best barbecue is Memphis-style barbecue. It's the sweeter, tangier barbecue sauce. Delicious. Well, it's my understanding as well that this was really kind of perfected and initiated during times of slavery because yep. the slaves got the worst parts of the meat and meat that had been spoiled and all kinds of other things, and they couldn't afford to waste it. So right. they had to figure out ways to make it taste palatable. Yeah. And barbecue was one of those ways of doing that. And of course, now things have changed to a large degree, and they don't have to use the poorest cuts of the rotten meat and things of that nature. But, mm -hmm. I mean, that is the birth of this was, you know, necessity being the birthplace of invention, right? Yeah. Yeah. You could have a great time on Beale Street, which is like the main drag in downtown Memphis, listening to some blues music, having some delicious barbecue. Then you can go to Graceland and see Elvis's house, and then you can hit the Civil Rights Museum, and you can have a really good time. It seems like a, a pretty amazing place. Yeah. Lorenzen himself was tall, even as a baby. Um, he grew up raised by his mother and grandmother in the same house. His parents never married. Mm -hmm. um, his father, Herb, though, did make efforts to be part of his son's life whenever he could. He wasn't just a disappearing father. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I read somewhere that his mom said he was so tall that, like, he couldn't even be on her lap yeah. as a baby because he was just so, his body was so long. Yeah. He was a big boy. 
And by the eighth grade, he was already standing out and had made the decision early to attend Memphis State. That was like his hometown pride university. Yeah, so Memphis State is and University of Memphis are the same. So it, it was Memphis State, and then it became University of Memphis. Okay, that's a good, good point there. And people came from all over to see him play. Yeah. He was exciting. Yeah. Um, he was very charismatic and talented on the court. And even bigger still, he loved the crowds and the fans. Yeah. He always had he, a smile on like, his face. People were drawn to him. Like, it was... I mean, it was it was something special to watch him play. I mean, he's a good-looking guy, too. Like, I, I, I can't deny that either. Um, and he had, mm-hmm. they said, a very humble attitude. And even when he made it to the NBA and left Memphis, he still was, like, a, just a really good down-to-earth person that people wanted yeah. to be around. Because didn't he play for the Grizzlies, too? At one point, yes. So yeah, okay. to start out, he ended up as the seventh overall draft pick in the 1996 NBA draft. Mm-hmm. He went to the Los Angeles Clippers. Okay. And it's my understanding that he left school early to go into the draft. Okay, yeah. So he's basically this instant millionaire. Yeah. And they called him the Howl at one point because he used to make, whenever he made a good play, he would howl like a wolf. <laughs> so it was like one of his trademarks. Uh, and the Clippers, awesome. made, the Clippers made the playoffs the first year that he was with them. Nice. And this makes him an even bigger name in the NBA. Um, he did well there for nearly three full seasons, and then he got traded to the Atlanta Hawks in 1999, and then he got to go back home to the Memphis mm-hmm. Grizzlies in 2001. Then he went back to the Atlanta Hawks in 2006, and then on to the Sacramento Kings in 2008. Okay. So he'd made it big. Yeah. But he was still this nice guy, and he was known for offering friends and family basically the shirt off his back. Like, he wanted to care for people. He bought his mother a house. Like, he took really good care of people. Right. And he loved being a dad. And it wasn't just friends and family, unfortunately. No. It was, like, everyone around he him. He was very generous with a lot of people. Um, his house was the hangout spot. Yeah. And basically, he brought, like I said earlier, he bought his mother a house near him, only about mm-hmm. three minutes away. So, like... His house and his mother's house were connected by kind of this back road, this little kind of country back road, and it was a real quick little three-minute shot mm-hmm. between his house and his mother's house. And the back yeah. road was called Callus Cutoff. And it's one okay. of those, like, really kind of remote little country roads with no lights, and it's pretty isolated. It's kind of heavily wooded areas on both sides of the road. But it's in the Memphis area, right? Uh, yes. Okay. So, July. Oh, well, it's just outside of Memphis. My understanding. Um, July 18th, 2010. Lorenzen leaves his house. He's in Collierville, Tennessee. Okay. So it's about 30 miles between Memphis and Collierville. Yeah. So it looks like it's it's east, pretty far east. Because if you go west of Memphis, you're literally in a city called West Memphis in Arkansas. So got to go east. So it's close. It's not in Memphis proper, but it's probably like a suburb of Memphis. Because Memphis is such a huge city. Yeah, it's outside Germantown. If you are at all familiar with the Memphis area, you have heard of Germantown. So it's outside of Germantown. And I'm going to talk about Germantown in just a second. But, yeah. um, but people weren't immediately concerned when he vanished because they were thinking maybe he went to Vegas or he was off somewhere having fun. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. he's this NBA guy, right? Yeah. And he made a lot of money and he knew a lot of people and he liked to have a good time. And so they and thought maybe he'd taken off on a pleasure trip. And he was no longer playing at this time, correct? Correct. 
Yeah. He had retired by then. I believe he retired in 2000. Yeah. 2008 or 2009 was when he retired, but he was retired at this time, and he was also divorced. Mm-hmm. He was a divorced father. Okay. So after he took off and they start to realize he's not answering calls to his children, he's not answering texts, they start to look into his life. And, they, and they're examining things and investigating this. I think that there was a um, missing persons report. Did I say July 8th I don't or July that. 18th? Sorry. Um, in any case, uh, July 22nd is when they okay. filed a missing persons report. Mm-hmm. So they give it a few days hoping he's going to turn back sure. up because he's an adult man. And he doesn't live in Collierville anymore. He lives in oh, okay. Georgia. And he's there visiting. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're looking at his life, and they see that he met his wife, Shara, in his junior year of high school. Her father was his summer league basketball coach. Mm-hmm. So I guess they were just friends initially, and then she goes off to college, and they kind of keep track and keep touch, and then they start dating eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's this very pretty, tall woman. She's determined. She's intelligent. She's in college. She's doing well in college. She's well-spoken, and most people believe that um, these two are going to get married. Yeah. But she basically reels them in, and they get married. Mm-hmm. She, they have a baby first, and then they get married. Okay. But it wasn't all smooth sailing for these two. Lorenzen's family and friends really thought she was kind of a gold digger. Hmm. That she was just trying to lock him down, and she wanted to be rich, and he's going to make millions, and they, they're really suspicious of her. Uh, but while he was in college, like I said, she gave birth to their first child, and basically they get married shortly after that. And okay. he splits his time between the baby, practice, and schoolwork. I can't imagine. Like, there's some kids. No. There's some, I, I say kids because I'm almost 40, but, like, there's some college students, basketball players at Auburn that have kids, and I just, I don't, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it like, either. Like, you've got to have unlimited energy oh my to, gosh. to handle all of that yeah. together. I can't even imagine doing basketball and school at the same yeah. time. Yeah, it's hard enough feat. being an athlete and, like, being an athlete at that level and then also now having, like, a young child. I can't, I don't know how you do it. Yeah. So, in any case, a few years after the birth of their first child, Lorenzen and Shara get married and their family continues to expand. They first had a son, then a daughter, then they had two twins, and then two additional kids after that, including one daughter who died of SIDS, Mm -hmm. which is very sad. Um, And that was rough on the family Mm -hmm. as well, losing that that child. Um, But according to friends and family, family meant everything to Lorenz. His kids were the most important thing in his life, and he was a good dad by all accounts. In the early days, Shara and Lorenzen got along well and the marriage was good, but then cracks began to show and Shara likes to spend a lot of money and Lorenzen is not necessarily the most faithful guy. Right. He's on the road a lot and there's a lot of temptation. He's kind of a ladies man, he's good looking and women are chasing him, which they, I think they do with professional athletes. Anyway. I was gonna say, yeah, he's a professional athlete. He gets, he's traveling a lot. It's not uncommon to hear that some professional athletes cheat on their girlfriends and wives when they're on the road. Yeah, so it's, it's hard. It's tough to be in that environment and not eventually succumb to that. 
because you've got a lot of money, you've got fun, you've got alcohol involved, you've sometimes got drugs. Yeah. There's people, you know, with no responsibility. It looks different from your home life where you've got kids and you've got to do homework and, and do things with your family. And then you go on the road and it's like a little mini vacation and you just have fun. Yeah, it's like right? the grass is greener on the other side. Like you get to experience the grass on the other side. And then you yeah. get to go home and like have your normal happy life if nobody finds out what you've done. Right. Well, I... According to family, they say things officially broke down when Lorenzen caught Shara with another man. Oh, so like he she caught could her cheat, or he could cheat, but she couldn't. Yeah, which seems like a double standard. Yep. But in any case, the two stayed together after that first catching of her. But then they finally called it quits when Shara filed for divorce a little okay. while after that. After the divorce, both Shara and Lorenzen appeared to be raising their children together without a lot of drama. Appeared. Mm-hmm. Right. By the summer of 2010, things were not all that they appeared to be, though. So at that time, Lorenzen was staying in Atlanta with a friend, and his career had ended. And things between Shara and Lorenzen didn't seem to taper in the physical department. I guess they were still having kind of a sexual relationship. Right, okay. And it's complicated, right? Yeah. And, but there were other people that said that seeing the two interact, they thought they were going to get back together and start Interesting. over. Interesting. Because there was still a connection there. They still care about each other. Oh, sure. I mean, they um, have five kids together. It's hard not together. to. Yeah, when you've got a whole family together, you've got history, you've known each other for that long. Yeah. It's hard to, to walk away from something like that. Um, Lorenzen evidently proposed again. And she said, and Shara said yes. Um, and he had come back to Memphis to participate in some family events. So it was mm-hmm. like a baby shower and some other things that he had come back to participate in. And when he got into town, he called his buddies, and basically they drove around. They had some fun. They had, you know, a few nights out with the boys. And by July 18th, 2010, they were in the throes of another southern summer. It's hot, and it's probably pretty doggone unbearable in that area. It's middle of July, right, in the south. God, so humid, yeah. It's around midnight when a 911 call came into the Germantown, Tennessee police dispatch. Okay. And like you had mentioned earlier, this is just east of Memphis. Yeah. The call was short. There's some shouting or cursing, something of that nature. It's not extremely clear what it is. And then there's a bunch of gunshots. Whoa. On this 911 call. And then the line goes dead. Mm-hmm. The operator's like, hello, hello, and then hangs up. And they don't do anything else after that. They don't try to figure out where this person is. They don't know where the call's coming from or who it is. They just let it go. You can hear the dispatcher say something to the, to the effect of, um, I didn't hear anything. You know, there's just some gunshots, and that's yeah. it, right? So I actually just heard this thing, and I don't know if it's true or not. So if you are or have been a 911 operator, please write and let me know. But I actually heard that they cannot get your exact location from your cell phone. It has to be a landline. So, like, you, if you call them, you have to tell them where you are if you're calling from a cell phone. Yeah, I don't think that they can determine that um, on their end as a dispatcher. But yeah, I think there's procedure in place where if something, like, there's fear of imminent death or, or danger to somebody, that they can contact other authorities. And there's a way to triangulate to try to oh, figure okay. out where the call came from. Okay. Based upon, you know, where it pings off cell towers and stuff like that. Yeah. But okay. they have to initiate that next step. They right. can't just drop it there, and they just dropped it. And I see. Okay. When, when authorities kind of investigate this a little further, they determined that the dispatcher did follow procedure. Like, 
-hmm. There is no, there, in that particular instance, there was no obligation per se to investigate further after that. Because the, that there, is crazy. there's no screaming, there's no like, it's just gunshots and a person kind of shouting. So, like, it could be construed in any one of a number of ways. Yeah, but, like, how many other options are there when you hear multiple gunshots? I don't know. For me, personally, I would have been very concerned, and I would have tried to initiate some further yeah. action. But this, this person did not, and they were not reprimanded for that, because that was procedure. Right. I understand, like, if you're f from the South or familiar with Memphis, you know, like, it's n it probably isn't unusual for a 911 dispatcher to hear gunshots, but like, even even if it's something that you hear regularly, like, what uh, what else could it be? Yeah, like, and I don't know mean? if this person know. was desensitized to it because she was a 911 operator. I don't know. I don't know what the the call was about. But I mean, regardless, like she did not do anything wrong. No, right. she followed procedure as she right. was told to do, and that's you know it is what it is. Right. In any case, Lorenzen is on the other side of this call, and he's being shot to death. And his friends and family are, like, frantically texting and calling him when he's not showing up to any of the events that he was supposed to be at that weekend. And at first, again, they thought he was off partying or whatever, but then by July 22nd, they're like, uh-uh. And they filed yeah. that missing persons report then. His body was found shortly after on July 28th in a wooded area on the back of a callus cutoff, that back route between his mom's house and his, his own mm -hmm. home that he once shared with his wife and kids. So Memphis police like had started investigating this immediately and they kind of discover a little bit of a precarious financial situation going on. Mm -hmm. Lorenzen had made over $55 million playing basketball, but Shara also liked to spend money a lot and so did he yeah. for that matter he liked fancy cars like they had a nice house they were spending a lot of money and Lorenzen to combat this had developed kind of some side hustles he had like a car detailing business and a restaurant and a bunch of other stuff mm -hmm. um, but he also had this friend who was a band by the name of Bobby Cole and this guy was said to be a very high-level drug dealer and he also liked to race cars so Lorenzen mm -hmm. had gotten kind of connected with this person to sell some cars to him because he was needing money. And so initially the police thought maybe it had something to do with drugs or that maybe Lorenzen had, you know, had a drug connection or was, had some kind of drug involvement. Um, right. And then they had done an investigation in the background of that and determined that that was not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they go to the ex-wife, because that's always the first person that they go to, is either your current or ex-spouse. Right. And she again mentions the drugs. And says that a few bad drug dealers had visited the house, and they came to visit with Lorenzen, claiming they wanted to harm him. She says she saw him leave with these guys and some drugs in a box. And claimed that he was trying to make some quick cash that they were down he was down on his luck and he was trying to make cash and that it was likely drug dealers who had done this okay i don't have a lot of experience or any experience with drug dealers but i don't think they normally like threaten you right like if they're just going to kill you they're just going to kill you i don't know i mean i don't know any drug dealers i don't know any drug type situations yeah. so i can't really speak to that but the police had actually been kind of canvassing all the areas, and they found out about that Germantown call, the 911 call, and 
Mm-hmm. They kind of triangulated it to find where the body was. And they also heard from friends and family that things have been very tense with Lorenzen and Shara. And the night that the that Lorenzen was killed, there had been an argument between Lorenzen and Shara. And a friend had said that he dropped Lorenzen off at Shara's house, and that was the last time anyone saw him until nine days mm. later when that 911 call came in. Or, excuse me, until nine days later when the police figured when out... When they were able to link that. Yeah, when they linked that and figured out what it was. Um, mm. This is just incredibly sad. He normally stood 6'11 and weighed about 255 pounds. When they found his body, he weighed just 57 pounds. Yeah, I was going to ask if you were going to talk about the state of his remains. He had literally just melted yeah. in the summer heat. Like, just yeah. awful, 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 awful. His body had been badly decomposed, and he'd been shot at least five times before succumbing to his injuries. Family members were notified by police and were crushed, especially his mom, which, you know... Right. You never expect your child to pass away before you, and, and she was just devastated. And this was an odd place for the body to show up, so close to his house with Shara. So right. police are kind of suspicious there. There were also shells and casings from two different weapons on the scene, and that sort of showed them that there was more than one person likely involved in this. Hmm. But why? And who would do this? This case went cold for more than five years. And by then, it's like, you know, it's relegated to the back dusty file cabinet, right? Yeah. Um, They had already held a massive funeral for him, and it was in the place where he used to play, I think the FedEx Forum or something of that nature. And lots of people showed up to celebrate his life, and Shara appeared to move on. He had decomposed in the the summer heat and the rain and this... and, and animals and everything. So it was it was so bad that they were unable to have an open casket at his memorial service, which is terribly sad. Shara looks like she's moving on. I guess she eventually, you know, got more involved in her church and became a pastor. Interesting. Which seems a little weird to some of her family members that knew her were like, well, she's still living the same kind of wild partying lifestyle, yeah. and yet she's a pastor now? Like, mm, that's kind of weird. Um... And his mother refuses to yeah. accept defeat in this. She is, like, on the phone, constantly checking in with the police department. What are you doing? What's yeah. going on? She's Tell me mama. where you are. And she goes yep. to the police station every day asking yeah. police, like, what's going on? Um, she also held candlelight vigils. She did press releases. She wanted to keep her son's story out there alive, keep mm-hmm. people looking, keep people talking. Sharon had actually gotten a million-dollar payout right. after Lorenzen's death from a life insurance policy. Um, There was also a protracted legal battle between her and Lorenzen's dad, and he had claimed that Shara was spending all of the money from the policy Mm. on herself and not the kids. She was buying, like, fancy cars and expensive things and living very lavishly. Then she does something really weird, Shara, that is. She writes a book. It's like this dime store novel kind of book, like salacious little bit of a, like a romance sort of a thing. It's called Mr. Tell Me Anything. Okay. And it's the story of a woman who married an NBA player, and it's kind of like, you know that book by O.J. Simpson? The if I Did It? Yeah. Yeah. Because basically she's talking about this NBA player's wife, and he ends up dead, and 
it's just, it's on Amazon still. I went and looked it up. Interesting. It's still on Amazon. <laughs> the character in the book is Sharon Roberson. Uh-huh. Her, she's Shara Robinson. Right. I mean, come on. Like, not... <laughs> Right. And not so much with the creativity. Yeah. And she claims that, you know, the book is based loosely upon her relationship with Lorenzen and he had been physically abusive and just implies that he had been had been neglectful and physically abusive. Mm-hmm. When everyone that knows the couple say there's no way. And it it could be true. Right. But the thing is she's like trying to demonize him, it seems to a lot of people. Like, she got the money that she wanted out of this, and now that he's gone, she's trying to make more money off of it. She right. kept trying to squeeze the estate for more money, and she was just being very greedy, a lot of people thought. Yeah. She denies that she has anything to do with Lorenzen's death, and she gets interviewed, like, multiple times, and you can actually mm-hmm. listen to the actual interviews that are, like, online. And she's just like, I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm an author, I'm a this, I didn't have anything to do with this, and she's just firmly, like, in denial about having anything to do with it. Right, and she's not very sensitive to the fact that this is an unsolved murder. Yeah. Like, just in general. Yeah, oh yeah. It just, uh, it's gross. Um, And the reviews are not good. I think she has, like, seven reviews, and they're all bad. (laughs) One person was like, yeah, this is a great book, and everybody else was like, "Mm, the editing's terrible, like, proofreading Mm. would have helped, and just, clearly she self-published. Yeah. Um, But in any case, um... (laughs) She gets romantically involved for a while with this reporter that had interviewed her, and they go to Houston for a while, and she's, like, living a pretty quiet life, and then they break up, and Shara and the kids move to Riverside, California. God, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and in the meantime, though, police are combing through the files on Lorenzen's case, because they're like, we're yeah. not willing to give this up. It's been seven years, and then they find... One of the murder weapons in a lake in Walnut, Mississippi. Hmm. Where is Walnut, Mississippi? Let me look that up. I'm guessing it's between Oxford and uh, Memphis, but... Oh, yeah, it's, like, right... It's just south of the state line from... Kind of in between Tupelo and... So it's about 75 miles from Memphis. Yeah, it's actually kind of closer to... What was it? Colliersville? Yeah. It's actually... Well, Collierville. It's... It's kind of just in the middle north of the state. So 45 miles from Collierville. So somebody took a little bit of a drive. Yeah. To chuck this weapon. Yeah. Um, Across state lines, no mm-hmm. less. So there's a guy by the name of Jimmy Martin, and he's Shara Wright's cousin. And he's been convicted of a totally unrelated case for killing his girlfriend. And he wants to cut a deal with the prosecutor. Ooh. And so he tells him that he participated in the death of Lorenz and Wright. He also calls out Shara and a man by the name of Billy Ray Turner. Okay. Billy Ray Turner was basically the lawn boy. He cut Shara's really? grass. He was the yard guy. And he was also a deacon at her church. This guy didn't have any money. He's basically just a pawn in this, according to what police think. Was he having an affair with Shara? I guess he'd slept with her, but they weren't, like, super tight. I think she was doing what she needed to do to get what she wanted out of this guy. I see. Okay. At one point, Jimmy Martin and Billy Ray, so her cousin and this Billy Ray lawn guy, actually drove to Atlanta on a separate occasion to kill Lorenzen. Whoa. She had set it up. She'd actually gone out to the house and opened a window for them, according to these witnesses. 
and then they had gone and gone in through this unlocked window and were going to shoot him, but he ended up not being there, so they have to leave because they can't do what they set out to accomplish, right? Oh, my gosh. Martin says that Shara and Billy Ray Turner told him that they killed Lorenzen later. So after these two had snuck in and attempted to do it themselves, a new plot had formed, and Shara and Billy Ray just went ahead and did it themselves. Huh. And he had helped them clean up after, including disposing of this weapon. So her cousin had helped get rid of the weapon, but the lawn boy and Shara killed Lorenzen on this back road. Okay. And then Martin drove to Mississippi and threw the murder weapon in a lake. Mm. Okay. So police followed Martin's directions pretty specifically and found this gun. And they test the gun and determine that it is indeed the murder weapon, or at least one of them, right? Right. Simultaneously, though, police were monitoring Shara and Billy Ray and finding a lot of incriminating evidence. 46-year-old Billy Ray Turner is the first to be arrested, and they charge him with, uh, with murder, obviously. And they're narrowing in on Shara. And when and was this? This was like 15, 16? Seven years after, so... 2017. Yeah. Yeah, because I remember right. when, this, when they finally started making arrests in this. Evidently, they determined as well that she had indeed slept with this guy and basically talked him into committing murder. Hmm. Billy Ray enters a not guilty plea, and clearly Sherrod used this man, according to what prosecutors are thinking. But in the meantime, before they go to trial, they go to grab Shara, and they mm-hmm. arrest her in Riverside, California, for first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy for Lorenzen's death. Okay. She was extradited and brought back to Memphis, Tennessee to stand trial, and they were going to try her and Billy Ray Turner together. Uh-huh. She pleaded not guilty. Um, she was given a $20 million bond, which is very high. Whoa, yeah. But they figured she had the cash to bail herself out right. or you know, get, was able to gather that if she needed to, so they set it really high. And then she just unravels, according to like, the jailers. She's berating workers. She strips all of her clothes off at one point, and she floods her cell and says she's going to go swimming. Oh. This led some to say she was mentally unstable, and others said she was faking it so she could set herself up to make an insanity plea. I mean, I think both of those things could be true. Like, it's not necessarily that she's faking it. I think if you are living a very lavish lifestyle and all of a sudden you're arrested and you're in a very tiny jail jail cell, it probably does have a very serious effect on your mental health. Oh, I'm sure. You know what I mean? Like, in any case, um, at one point, all of her attorneys quit. Yeah. <laughs> and then new counsel had to come in, and they said she had got some medication, and she'd stabilized her behavior, and I don't know. None of it's diagnosed, and no one ever reveals, like, what actually was going right. on with her. Um, in any case, the trial begins, and Billy Ray Turner claims he had nothing to do with the murder, which they all do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Then Shara Wright and Billy Ray Turner were getting tried together, and we all know what that means. There's going to be some plea deals yep. going on. Somebody's right? flipping. And whoever squeals first gets the best deal. Yeah. But June 2019, Billy Ray has an unrelated gun charge involved here and he knows he's going to get some time behind bars so he takes the plea deal first yeah he pleads what's called open to the gun charge what does that which mean? means he get he gets convicted and this leaves it to the judge to determine what the sentence is oh okay yeah it's interesting yeah i've never i'd never heard of this huh it's kind of like throwing yourself at the mercy of the yeah. court essentially 
Like, I know that I have this charge. I'm pleading guilty to that charge, and I'm going to throw myself at your mercy. Please don't put me in jail for life. Right. Um, Shara then, um, with the strong advice of her attorneys, takes a plea deal as well, and she goes for a sentence of 30 years, um, and she has to serve 30% of that before she's eligible for, for parole. Mm -hmm. So she, gets, she pleads guilty to facilitation of first-degree murder and facilitation of attempted first-degree murder, which, again, I'd never heard of that either. Facilitation, not conspiracy. Right. I guess right? that's, like, Tennessee-specific. I think so. But she, um, the, she pleads to plotting, not the other charges, and she basically doesn't name any of her accomplices. She doesn't say anything. Did they drop the murder charge completely? Yeah. Hmm. And the thing is, like... I feel like they were hoping she was going to squeal as part of this plea deal, and she doesn't say a damn word. Huh. And she could do as little as nine years before her release, they said. Yeah. Or the, she, there could be as little as nine more years before she's released. Shara's kids stood by their mom, even after the trial. Um, and then there were two more years passed before Billy Ray Turner's trial because they separated out because of that plea deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he had actually pleaded not guilty, and... the. They had actually done the trial part, but they had to do the sentencing. Sorry. Oh, okay. So two more years passed before he was being sentenced. This was 12 years after Lorenzen's death, by the way. Yeah. Um, the authorities believe motive here was money. Jimmy Martin, that gentleman who had told them where the gun was, mm -hmm. got immunity for this and no conviction in this case. But keep in mind, he was already on the books for a murder case for his girlfriend, so it's right. likely that he is in jail now already, so there's nothing to worry about there. Shara and Billy Ray evidently had ambushed and shot Lorenzen. Both had fired at this guy. Right, because you said there were two guns that were used. Yes, okay. yeah, which just, how could you do that to this person you had said yes to and we're gonna remarry? Like, what in, seriously. But cell tower records had placed the perpetrators on the scene mm. in the same area as Lorenzen. Um, Billy Ray Turner did not testify on his own behalf, and it takes two hours to get the verdict. He's guilty of first-degree murder and guilty on all three counts. Oh, sorry. I, I guess I misspoke there. He pled open to the gun charge that he had previously. Right. And then he went to trial on the other charges related to Lorenzen. So the unrelated gun charge he pled first. And then he had a trial later for the two other charges. That seems like poor legal advice, but... Yeah. So two hours it takes him to get a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder on all three counts. He's guilty. And basically they consider him guilty on attempted murder and conspiracy charges as well. Mm -hmm. Sentencing was done immediately. He gets life in prison for the murder part, and then sentencing hasn't happened yet for the two additional charges of conspiracy and attempted murder. He's doing life in prison per state sentencing guidelines, so it's not really, it's kind of, that stuff is kind of irrelevant. Right. Today, Lorenzen's sons still play basketball, and they wear their dad's number. Yeah. Shara is eligible for parole in five years. The kids receive their dad's NBA pension. I guess they all split it now. A very, very sad case. I mean, it's one of those things where it's just like, this person clearly got a little too greedy. Yeah, and... It's hard to believe that the, like, the father of your children, like this person that you said you loved and you have the balls to yeah. shoot him in cold blood like that. I don't know if, if, you, if you use any of this for your research, but Sports Illustrated has a true crime section. Yes, it's oh, fascinating. Oh, they do? Um, and 
one of the very first stories I read on their Sports Illustrated True Crime is was about Lorenzo, and this was before anybody was arrested. So it was it was very much still a cold case. Oh, and wow. I'll send you the link um, so we can post it. It's 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 a very very good read. It's it's clear that they you know the writers believe Cher is involved, but this is four years before. Well, who writes a book about it and like speculates like it's yeah I think this was before the book because I don't remember reading creepy. about the book but um, it's clear that they think that she's involved in some kind of way but again this was written four yeah. years before she was arrested so but it talks about how just sad it is that this guy who loved Memphis who gave so much to Memphis and Memphis gave so much back to him and the way that he was found the way he was disposed of and the way his case just yeah. kind of sat there for so long it's it's a good read um so we'll share that too it's it's a very sad story absolutely um if you have any questions comments or suggestions you can shoot us an email we're at the bfd podcast at gmail.com if you have other information about this case or personal experiences or you read the book mr tell me anything shoot us an email we'll give you a shout out on the show Um, we'll talk about it we'll chat um, we do post pictures. We'll post some pictures of Lorenzen on the Instagram account as well as Shara because she's a very interesting woman. Um, what's our Instagram? Yeah, so we are at the BFD podcast on Instagram. And like, I, like Sarah said, we'll post pictures of Lorenzen. There's lots of pictures of him still playing. Like, he was so good, you guys. Like, it's, he, was, he was fun to watch, I remember. Yeah. Very sad story. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.